0: Formula One is having a moment. And it's attracting a new generation of fans, drawn to the speed. And
1: it's pushing over 340 kilometers an hour. It's danger. But that is a red flag, oh, and dear. you can see the damage that has been done there.
0: And the lifestyles of its rich and famous drivers. And a sport that was once considered esoteric, elitist, and European is stepping out on the world stage. I'm Kevin Hurton, in from Alika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today I'm talking with Simon Chadwick. He's a professor of sport and geopolitical economy at Schema Business School in Paris. And this is what he associates with Formula One.
1: Historically, fast cars, white men, tobacco, gorgeous women. Nowadays, technologically advanced, commercially developed, digitally savvy.
0: Simon's also been an on-again, off-again fan of Formula One since the 1970s, when his dad got him into the sport. Things were a bit different back then. Cigarette logos were plastered all over the race cars, and models were paid to come to the racetrack to promote their products. The audience was different too.
1: As a British guy whose, if you like, formative Formula One years were spent in Britain, the typical audience tended to be middle-class, middle-aged white guys. Uh, and some kids and at that time I was one of the kids the former head of Formula One Bernie Eccleston once referred to the typical F1 audience consisting of men who buy Rolexes and for a long time I think that's how it was this was not a a cheap sport you know you, you actually needed a car which is very expensive and you need to be able to get to the circuit and lots of other circuits to be able to race and so unlike for example in football you take a ball and you kick in the street and that's it with motorsport it was very very different so there were barriers to entry in terms of consumption so when i look at the new audiences now i'm actually quite amazed because these audiences are number one bigger number two much more diverse and i guess number three crucially actually consuming the sport in a different way
0: I'm one of those new F1 fans, and by the time I started watching, a change was already in full swing.
1: Historically, really historically, Formula One is just a bunch of club racers, people who like racing cars, driving cars incredibly quickly. And so for a long period of time, the the principles of amateurism really were pervasive within Formula One. Jack Rabham in a car of his own make and Graham Hill in a BRM while reigning champion Jim Clark was driving a Lotus. All the top names in the Austrian Grand Prix. Then we saw a man called Bernie Eccleston become prominent. Bernie Eccleston was a used car dealer. He was also a club racer. He then became a team owner. He was very politically astute and he navigated himself into a position whereby essentially he owned and controlled and was the face of Formula One. He was financially savvy. He knew how to make money. But there was a long period of time, I think, when many observers felt that Formula One was really punching below its weight certainly in financial and commercial terms. And it was only then, really, with the sale of Formula One by Eccleston in 2016 that things really began to change.
0: That's when Liberty Media, an American company, bought Formula One for $4.4 billion. Some of the cultural changes had been making their way into the sport for a while. Formula One had already banned cigarette advertising in the mid 2000s, and Liberty also formally got rid of Grid Girls, the women models involved in the sport's opening ceremonies. For decades, the Formula One Grid Girls have been part of the Grand Prix lineup, displaying the drivers' numbers. But now the sport's bosses have decided it's time for the girls to go. And then there were the business changes.
1: The operating model, I think, of of Formula One has become more strategically commercial, but also more globally commercial.
0: Arguably, the pandemic was also significant too. Shutdowns from the pandemic upended the sports world. More
1: of the world's biggest sporting contests cancelled or postponed. The European Championships this summer will be postponed until 2021. The 2020
0: Olympics in Japan will be postponed. This hit Formula One too, of course. Drivers and their teams went to Australia in March of 2020 for the first Grand Prix of the season, which was canceled just before the practice sessions for the race were set to begin. But some drivers went through with the race, just virtually.
1: This feels like the actual thing. I feel like I'm in Australia right now.
0: Formula One drivers were,
1: instead of attending Grand Prix because of COVID, they were racing fans online as, as part of, kind of console games. And then we all started binge watching Netflix.
0: Simon's talking about Drive to Survive. That's the Netflix show that converted me from a casual fan to a a never-miss-a-Grand Prix fan. It completely transformed the image of a sport that on TV broadcasts can seem repetitive or overly technical. Suddenly, Formula One isn't just 20 strangers driving around a track for two hours. Now, I have drivers I love and teams I hate. I'm invested. These guys have an almost fighter pilot mentality, and that's what separates them from mere mortals. I think F1 is intimidating for, for people who don't understand it. It's like getting into jazz or something. So this comes along, and it takes you know a few nights of binge watching, and suddenly you're up to speed on the rules. But I think most importantly what it does is it accentuates the glamour, the drivers, the lifestyle. There's all these other things going on beneath the surface, and that show really plays that up.
1: I think what you say about jazz, and I like using jazz as a metaphor very often, so it never occurred to me before that Formula One used to be John Coltrane and perhaps it's Kenny G now, or maybe someone of that nature. But you're right, there has been this transformation. What I think is significant about Netflix, apart from that pandemic period binge-watching, is the way in which it helps to recapture what sport is all about, which is that uncertainty of outcome.
0: You also get a sense of what these drivers go through day in and day out. How difficult and dangerous it is to drive what is essentially a jet with wheels.
1: There is a skill set required to be successful in Formula One that most people don't realize and understand. It's physical strength, it's mental strength, but it's also about the ability to make decisions very, very quickly. A while back, I did a webinar with Mika Hakkinen, who was a Formula 1 world champion, and, and he was saying, well, you know, I'd be driving along a, a straight at 300 kilometres an hour, and, and you blink. And literally, by the time you've opened your eyes again, you're there on the corner and having to make a decision. Your rival is coming up on the inside, and if you touch one another, you know, there's a chance that one of you could actually be seriously injured. And, and the way he, he told this story I just thought, wow, you have to be incredibly sharp. Your reflexes have really got to be incredibly well-honed. So I think Formula One drivers are a special breed.
0: But skillful driving does not a Netflix series make. What made it a hit is the human drama around the paddock. High stakes, hot tempers, and seething rivalry. All the elements of good reality TV.
1: I think the Netflixization of Formula One is switching on people to not just these incredibly well-designed, expensive pieces of equipment that go very, very quickly, but it's also introducing them to these real people who sit inside these cars and their stories. And obviously those stories are not just off the track, they're also on the track as well.
0: Don't get me wrong. Drivers beefing with each other has always been a big part of the sport. But Simon says it used to be in the background. Now it's front and center. I recall
1: an incident back in um, the 1980s when uh, a Brazilian Formula One driver, Nelson Piquet.
0: Piquet? My goodness! Piquet
1: was involved in a crash with an on track rival. And as both of them got out of their cars, the first thing that Piquet did was attack, physically attack, his rival. I couldn't help it. Said, take that. Oh my goodness. Well, Nelson Piquet, understandably livid with rage. Now, back in the day, it was kind of, you know, how dare he do that? You know, there, there, there are certain standards of behaviour that you must uphold in this sport. Whereas now, I think in terms of Netflix, wow, that'd be gold dust. Can you imagine? Yes, sport is about the drama, the tension, the excitement. But by the same token, I know there are people out there in the world who do see this now, essentially transforming Formula One into a staged experience.
0: There's so much going on because you have a a sport that is transforming itself. I mean, now when I open up Twitter during a race, I mean, even like people's mothers are tweeting about, you know, Danny Ricardo's tire strategy. I mean, everybody is talking about Formula One right now. And it kind of feels like the sport of the future.
1: It's really interesting that you put it the sport of the future, because I think in my mind, I still got a very kind of old-fashioned almost parochial view of formula one but you know, i do realize that that there is this newer shinier more relevant more engaging formula one you, you mentioned their social media when i was a kid back in 1970s the way in which i typically watched formula one races you would get kind of a half hour edited highlights program on a sunday after the race And that was the main point of engagement. So, you know, here are some cars, here are some drivers, 30 minutes, that's it, the race is over and and done. So you now have a digital ecosystem that supports it. But the one dimension that we've not mentioned so far, which I do think is really significant is you don't just have drivers and teams taking this seriously or, or tracks taking this seriously. You've got cities taking this seriously. And you even have now countries taking this very, very seriously.
0: And nowhere is that more evident than in the Gulf. Ever since Bahrain hosted the first Formula One race in the Middle East back in 2004, a Grand Prix has been like a shiny new object that every country wants.
1: Viewed from one angle, Formula One is still very, very European. So you've got a significant number of European drivers, but you also have, most of those teams are based in Europe. But I think Netflix and digital developments have globalised it somewhat. I think there has been an acceleration of that change with the arrival, firstly of Bahrain and then a little later on Abu Dhabi, but more recently and more significantly, I think, Saudi Arabia and now Qatar. Just to give you one example, Saudi Arabia is constructing a new sports city just north of Riyadh.
0: Welcome to Kedia, a premier entertainment, sports and arts destination. Uniquely Saudi. A destination. This new city is called Qadiyah. The Saudi Public Investment Fund is spending billions of dollars to bring it to life. And they want it to be a home for racing especially. Inspiration. Where young Saudis race fearlessly into the future as they unlock the science and technology of motion and mobility at the motorsports capital of the world. The
1: Formula One Grand Prix in Saudi Arabia will be staged there from 2025 onwards. So you're talking about a dedicated facility specifically made to stage Formula One races, costing $500 billion.
0: And creating the track is just one of the expenditures that comes with holding a race. Cities pay for the honour of hosting as well.
1: So certainly if you go back to Eccleston, races paid Eccleston for the right to stage a Formula One event. And Eccleston realised that in the Gulf region, the likes of Bahrain and Abu Dhabi, they were prepared to pay huge amounts of money to stage these races.
0: Compare that to Monaco, one of the places most strongly associated with Formula One. A championship race in sunny Monte Carlo, the Monaco Grand Prix, sometimes described as the race of a thousand corners. Its status has meant that it shells out a fraction of what other spots pay to host a Grand Prix.
1: So you began to see a real big disparity between the Europeans who weren't prepared to pay and the likes of Abu Dhabi and and Bahrain that were. So I think we are living in a really interesting period in history where you still do have the remnants and the residue of the old world, but absolutely there is this new world emerging and exerting its presence and its profile on what is, as you said, is a real fast changing sport.
0: And on first glance, the Gulf does seem like a natural destination for Formula One. There's
1: something about status and there's something about prestige, but also linked to that too, I think, they're they're countries with big car cultures. For anybody who doesn't know anything about car culture in places like Qatar and Saudi Arabia, look at YouTube and you'll see.
0: There's a ton of videos like this online, showing joyriders doing all kinds of wild stunts while drifting at high speeds in the desert. But that's not the only reason why it makes sense for Formula One to head to the Gulf.
1: These are countries that are producing oil and gas. And of course, you know, Formula One uses lots of oil and, and, and indirectly uses lots of gas. One of the things that Liberty has been very smart at doing is bringing on board commercial partners, which historically Formula One has not had. So for instance, one of the sponsors has become Saudi Ramco, the state oil corporation of, of Saudi Arabia. So hey, you know that, that kind of makes sense. Here is a country that has oil, Which is used in Formula One. Formula One is looking for new partners. Saudi Aramco wants to get involved, etc., etc., etc.
0: Yeah. I mean, the real world does still creep in, though. I mean, there have been some controversial moments lately, accusations of sports washing. I mean, look at what happened in Russia. They had to cancel the Grand Prix. There were security concerns. I want to ask you about the uh, the race in Jeddah.
1: So at the race in Jeddah, which took place earlier on this season, a short distance away from the Formula One circuit, during race weekend, there was a a Houthi drone attack on an oil installation.
0: Developing situation in Saudi Arabia, a large explosion at an oil refinery in Jeddah, close to the circuit for this weekend's Grand Prix. And the Formula One Grand Prix, due to take place in Jeddah on Sunday, will go
1: ahead. Saudi Arabia is involved in a hugely fractious war that has resulted in numerous casualties.
0: Simon's talking here about the war in Yemen, where a Saudi-led coalition has been conducting airstrikes for years. Now Saudi Arabia forces are targeting Yemen in a series of deadly airstrikes. Yet another airstrike killing civilians was blamed on the Saudi-led coalition.
1: As the war in Yemen continues, lawyers representing hundreds of victims have called on the International Criminal Court to open an investigation into war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by the Saudi-led coalition. I think the drivers were involved in a four or five hour meeting to discuss whether or not they wanted to participate in a race that was at risk of attack from Houthi drones, And so I guess in one sense, this is the new geopolitical reality of Formula One. What's significant about all of this is I think what Formula One, and, and I think sport in the West historically has tended to do, is take a very transactional view Of how it engages in relationships so of course why wouldn't formula one go to saudi arabia saudi arabia is paying huge amounts of money for the right to do this and is prepared to back the sport but you you take that money it does come with a price
0: i use the term the sport of the future and i think it kind of threw you a little bit because it is still a very old-fashioned sport i mean it uses oil It's still pretty heavily dominated by white male drivers. There's a lot of nepotism there. There's a lot of generational wealth that goes into access to the sport. Yet it is having this moment and it's resonating in a new kind of global environment that is not always looking at perfect progress.
1: What you said there about Formula One having its moment, I think, is really, really important because it, it could well be that it is just a moment Looking into the future, we know the trajectory of sport and the world. It's not going to be straightforward for Formula One. There is a big concern about the degradation of the natural environment. This is a fossil fuel sport. And yet we are talking about cities across the world making announcements like they will no longer sell diesel or petrol cars from 2030 onwards. So in some ways, the shelf life is relatively limited. So I think great, Formula 1 having its moment, but I think if either Liberty or or the fans or anyone else involved with with Formula 1 foresees a sustainable future, then they will have to adapt. There is no doubt. It's almost like a a chronicle of transformation foretold. Formula 1 is going to have to change or die, and I think it knows that. So the next 10 years is going to be crucial for the sport.
0: And that's the take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliayi, with Ruby Zaman, Alexander Locke, Amy Walters, Chloe K. Lee, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Kevin Hurton. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Almilake and Adam Abu-Gad are The Take's engagement producers. Ney Alvarez is the head of audio. We'll be back.